Turn, if you would, to the book of Philippians. Last week, we finished the book of Ephesians. We made it through 16 lessons in the book of Ephesians. Philippians is a little bit shorter, so we'll see how we do in Philippians. Uh, if you don't know where Philippians is, simply go to Ephesians, where we were last week, flip the page, and there you will find Philippians. We had a lot of fun last weekend. We went camping in uh, Big Ben National Park. Uh, we slept in a tent. We had no electricity. So that was kind of interesting. One evening, before it got dark, uh, we were sitting in our campsite and 13 javelinas came walking through our campsite. They were peaceful. They were just grubbing for worms or something. They kind of took their time on their way through. Uh, later, after it was dark, uh, we shined a flashlight and there was a um, coyote about uh, 20 feet away from us and it ran off. So we had a lot of fun with nature. Six of us from the family went and we had a good time. So Philippians chapter 1 begins like a lot of Paul's letters. Paul and Timothy, this is chapter 1 verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So, what do we know about this? Well, we spent a lot of time at the beginning of Ephesians discussing the life of Paul. So we won't go uh, too, into too much depth talking about Paul. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of Christians. And God zapped him, knocked him off of his uh, horse when he was on his way to... Uh, persecute Christians, and called him into the ministry. He refers to himself as an apostle out of season. God uh, spent time teaching him the gospel, and he is primarily seen as the apostle to the Gentiles. He did preach to Jews in the same way that uh, Peter and others preached to Gentiles. But Paul is primarily known as the apostle to the Gentile community. We meet another individual in this introduction, Paul and Timothy. We first meet Timothy in the book of Acts, chapter 16, when it says that Paul came to Derba and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and took him and circumcised him because of the Jews were, who were in that, those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul is going to take Timothy on his second missionary journey to Philippi, and that's where the church is that the book of Philippians is addressed to. So what do we know about Timothy? Well, his mother was a Jewish convert to Christianity, and his father was a Greek. There is no discussion about his uh, father's religious uh, habits, so we're going to assume that he was an unbeliever. Elsewhere, we talk about Timothy's mother being a believer and Timothy's grandmother being a believer. So he had uh, an introduction to the Christian faith, and it says that he too was a fervent believer and a disciple in the town of Derby and Lystra. So Paul, wanting to take Timothy with him on his journey, had him circumcised. Now this is interesting. 
As the son of a Jewish woman and a Greek father, he probably, obviously, was not circumcised as a good Jewish boy would have been. Now, what is interesting is that elsewhere, Paul is very adamant that if you're going to force someone to be circumcised, you are doing something that violates the word of God because you're reintroducing legalism, that is, trying to keep the Jewish laws into Christianity. That's what the whole book of Galatians is about, not allowing that to happen. So why, if he is so adamant later when he addresses the church at Galatia, does he just offhandedly mention in this passage that he had Timothy circumcised? Well, the interesting thing is that Paul is very aware of what is and is not effective for his ministry. Remember, he has that verse, I become all things to all people that I might win some. So if having Timothy circumcised increases his influence among the Jewish believers, then he'll have him uh, circumcised. But if it's done as an act of the law that people think is necessary in order to be saved, Paul is going to fight that and say, no, we're not going to allow that to happen. So in one place, he has Timothy circumcised, and in another place, he refuses to have someone circumcised because the people were trying to force him to do it in order to prove that you had to be a Jew in order to be a Christian. And Paul said, no, you don't have to do that. And as I said, that's what the entire book of uh, Galatians is all about, is trying to reintroduce the Jewish law into Christianity. So Timothy is a young man who is very fervent in his belief, and Paul meets him and says, I want you to go with me. So we're going to see uh, Timothy mentioned multiple times in the book of Acts. We actually have two books of the New Testament that are direct uh, addressed directly to Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Now, it is interesting, I was reading an article this week uh, that speculated that 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy were actually letters that Paul wrote to Timothy so that Timothy could carry them with him. And if somebody asked, why should we listen to you? He would pull those out and say, see, this is what Paul has to say. And if Paul says it, then that is my, those are my credentials. It's an interesting idea. I had not heard of that before. So Timothy is going to go with Paul on his second missionary journey, and he's going to be in and out of the story for the rest of Paul's life. So Paul and Timothy are writing this letter. Now, Paul being the, well, if you will, the senior missionary is probably doing the, the, the dictating. Timothy may be doing the writing himself, but they are partners in the work that they're going to do. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. It is interesting. In other of Paul's letters, he always begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he has to defend his apostleship, and he has to work real hard to prove that he is an apostle. Well, you don't see any of that here. You don't see any of that having to prove anything to the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi is a church that Paul started a little bit more about that in just a moment. And Paul does not have to prove his apostleship to 
the church. In fact, there's really nothing bad in this letter. I mean, this letter is written to encourage the church. There's a little bit of an issue of two women that are fighting each other in the church, and Paul encourages them to work it all out, etc. But Paul is writing this letter to encourage the church at Philippi. More about that in just a moment. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So to the saints, we have a discussion in the book of Ephesians about this, that the saints are not just the super Christians, those who are way up here in their spirituality. The saints are all of us who are believers. We have been set apart for God, we are saints. In fact, this verse is interesting because it says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, and yes, to the overseers and the deacons. The overseers would be the elders and the deacons. So these are the people you would think would be the most mature, but he doesn't address just them as saints. He addresses the whole body. We are saints. So Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Where is Philippi? Well, it's in northern Greece. It actually had a name before it was Philippi, but when Philip of Macedonia, remember Alexander the Great's father, captured Greece, he renamed the town, well, after himself, or somebody renamed it after him. So at that point, it became known as Philippi. It is probably best known, though, for the uh, big battle that took place during the uh, Roman period. You remember, well, if you read Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, you remember that Julius Caesar was assassinated, and the people that were leading the uh, assassination plot fled, and Octavian, who later became Caesar Augustus, went after them. And he finally caught up with them, and they had a big battle at Philippi. There were actually two battles that were right next to each other, both involving uh, the murderers of Caesar and the troops of uh, Octavian, who eventually became Caesar Augustus. So since the battle was won there, uh, it became a very important Roman city. It uh, had certain privileges as a Roman city and uh, like certain taxes that it didn't have to pay and things like that. So the church at Philippi was started by Paul and Timothy and others on Paul's second missionary journey. And that's where he is writing this letter to. In fact, if you remember, Acts, Acts chapter 16 is where he talks about visiting uh, Philippi the first time. That is where he met Lydia. Lydia was the uh, seller of purple goods, which would have been high quality uh, clothing. And uh, Lydia became the first Christian there. Um, you also remember that this is the place where the slave girl who was demon-possessed was uh, making money for people, and uh, Paul uh, just kicked the demon out. And then the owners of the girl got ticked off, and they had him thrown in jail and beaten. And in the evening, he and uh, his company were singing songs, and that's where the uh, 
jail doors were open and the jailer was about to kill himself because he was worried that all of the prisoners had escaped. And Paul said, no, we're all here, all present and accounted for. And so the jailer and his family became believers. Just out of uh, curiosity, later Paul shows up in the town and uh, Paul and Silas, and it says that he preached. And he preached uh, so long that a young man fell asleep. He was sitting in a window. He fell asleep. He fell out and he died. And Paul actually raised him from the dead. I heard a preacher one time who said that the point of this lesson is that if you as a preacher want to preach really long sermons, you'd better be prepared to raise people from the dead. Just saying. So this is a mature church and Paul is writing them a letter. He is friends of theirs. He has close acquaintances there. And we'll mention some of those throughout this letter. So Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. As I said, the overseers are the elders and the deacons are those who are take care of the needs of the poor within the community. I might add, that's why our church follows that model of having elders, overseers, and deacons, because they have separate uh, and distinct ministries. So, Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think this verse looks familiar, remember the second verse of Ephesians chapter 1 that says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it looks very familiar. What is interesting to me is that since it is very familiar, we have a tendency just to brush over it. You know, this is just kind of a standard greeting and it doesn't really mean anything. Well, the reality is it means a lot because if Paul is praying something for them, if he's asking God for something for them, what is it that he's asking them for? What is he asking God to give to the church at Philippi, the church at Ephesus, the church at other places. And what he asked for is grace and peace. Now it's interesting because you and I think, well, we're believers. We received grace. We were saved. End of story. Why do we need more? When we talk about peace, we talk about being reconciled with God. Well, I was reconciled with God. I have peace with God. I'm done. What more do I need? Why would Paul begin his letters by asking for grace and peace to be given to them from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he knew that they needed this on a daily basis. We've had this discussion before. You know, we think of peace as, I mean, as of grace as something you need to be saved. And once you're saved, you're done. No. You and I need grace and peace every day of our lives. Not only do we need it, we need to experience it regularly. We need to experience the grace and peace that God has promised to us. It isn't just some abstract, oh, I'll throw this sentence in and it doesn't mean anything. Grace and peace. Each of us needs grace and peace on a continual basis. Verse three, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you. He has very fond memories of the church at Philippi. 
He has fond memories of particular individuals that we'll talk about later in the book. Uh, but just he has feelings toward them. And that's why he's writing this encouraging letter to them. Just out of curiosity, this got me thinking, you know, who is there in my life that I thank God when I remember them? When I was very young in the Baptist church, uh, as we do in the Baptist church, you know, you walk down the aisle to accept uh, Christ. And I did that. And um, since I was young, they had a, you know, a, a pattern of they would send somebody to talk to you to make sure you knew what you were doing. And the lady that came over to our house to talk to me was Miss Catherine Jackson. Uh, Catherine Jackson was a world-class teacher of children. In fact, somewhere in some file somewhere, I have a curriculum that she wrote for um, teaching kids at the First Baptist Church in downtown Fort Worth. And I might add, if um, most of us adults could keep up with that curriculum, we would be doing very well. Uh, so she came and she presented the gospel and explained in terms that I as a child could understand what it meant to accept Jesus Christ as my personal savior. So I have fond memories and Catherine Jackson died, I mean, a long time ago. I always remember when she passed away, they invited people to come over and uh, take what they wanted from her stuff because she had a house full of things that she used to teach kids the Bible. I mean, she had you know, flannel graphs, and she had models of the tabernacle, and she had all of these things that she had accumulated over her life in order to teach children about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember other people in my life, but the question is, who do you remember? Or do we sometimes become, well, not very grateful for the people that God has sent into our lives? Paul remembered the church at Philippi, and he thanked God for allowing him to participate in the ministry with them. Verse four, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. He had joy when he prayed for the church at Ephesus, which tells you that they uh, were not falling into any major sin. This is not the church at Corinth where he had to address very specific issues of morality and other problems that the church was having. He would remember them and he would pray for them and he would pray for them with joy. Now, watch that word joy because it's going to show up multiple times in this book. In fact, uh, a lot of commentaries just refer to this as the epistle of joy because we're going to see the word joy. We're going to see the word rejoice, which is from the same root. And we'll talk about this as we work through the book of Philippians. But what is joy? We tend to relate joy with happiness. I am happy. I am joyful. That's the same thing. But I don't think Paul sees it that way. Because as we're going to see in this, and as we saw in the book of Ephesians, Paul is in prison while he's writing this. 
Paul is suffering difficult times. The first time that he was in Philippi, he got beaten up and run out of town. Question, was that happiness? Probably not. But to Paul, it was joy. Joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, we talked about that when we worked through the book of Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So as a fruit of the Spirit, we know that the Spirit gives this to us as we live the Spirit-filled life. So that's the first thing we need to remember. But the second thing is that joy is present even in the midst of suffering and difficult times. So um, the verse in Hebrews chapter 12, I mean, there's 100, 170 something verses in the Bible dealing with joy. But in Hebrews 12, verse two, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So in joy, he saw what was before him. And because of what he saw at the end, he was able and willing to suffer in the present moment. And that's important. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. In James, we're told to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So joy is not happiness. Joy is something that we're getting from the Holy Spirit that allows us to fill the presence of God in the midst of the sufferings that we are going through at some particular point in time. More about that to come. But Paul remembered the church at Philippi with joy, and he prayed for them regularly. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It isn't I was the boss and you were the congregation. It was a partnership. He was working with them to spread the gospel. Do you remember this discussion that we had in the book of Ephesians where we talked about the gifts being given to certain people so that they could prepare us, the congregation, to do the work of ministry? It was a partnership. It wasn't Paul sitting there beating them over the head and keeping them in line. They were working together for the gospel. So, verse 6 great verse. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So what is the foundation of the joy that Paul has and that he is encouraging the church at Philippi to have? The joy is that God is going to complete what God started in their lives. We've had this discussion many, many times throughout uh, my teaching at, uh, in, in the Sages. And we're going to repeat it one more time because it is so important to us. 
when the New Testament talks about salvation, there is a past tense version of it. We have been saved. There is a present tense version of it. We are being saved. And there is a future tense version of it. We will be saved. And the words that we use to describe this is that we are justified. We have been declared right with God based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is done. That was done completely by the work of Jesus Christ. We do not participate in that. God saves us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is salvation. That is being saved. When you walk up to someone and say, have you been saved? Generally, that's what you're talking about. But we also talk about that process in the middle of being saved, and we refer to that as sanctification. Sanctification is God working out in us what Christ has put in us at that moment of salvation, of being justified. So God, working with us, work out that salvation. In fact, we're going to talk about that at length in the book of Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We are being sanctified. So we have been justified. It is done. We are being sanctified. And at some point in the future, we will be glorified where that last taint, that last little bit of sin is removed from our lives and we will be what God declared us to be at the beginning through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, here is the promise. He who began the work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The same person who started it is carrying it through until the very end. He who began, he who began will complete it. That's the promise that you and I need to stand upon. It's not like, okay, I was saved, and if I work real hard in my own strength and do it all myself, then God may let me continue to be saved. No. God saves, he justifies, he sanctifies, and then he glorifies. God does it all, but we are called to participate in the process of sanctification. That's why in the book of Ephesians, we had that long discussion about putting off certain things and putting on certain things. You and I are called to put off sin and the ways of this world and to put on the righteousness of Christ. He who began will complete. Not only is he just beginning some random thing, he is beginning a good work. Paul is confident in the church at Philippi that God started something good in them. 
And the promise that Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, delivers to them is that same God who delivered that good work will bring it to completion. Romans 8.30 tells us, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is this chain, and when God starts you down that path, God is going to finish it. Now, just so we understand completely, though, what's going on, there are those who, as I did as a child, walked down the aisle in the Baptist church and said, yeah, I want to be a Christian. But over the course of their life, you see no fruit, you see no evidence that that had an effect. We know that at the judgment, there will be those who believe that because they had walked down the aisle, said some prayer, did some event, that they are saved. Yet their lives never demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit. And we're told that Jesus will tell those, nope, you weren't really saved. We need to remind ourselves, it's not that they were saved and then they ceased to be saved. They were never saved to begin with. Now, we get into this long debate, and I want to avoid this long debate. The long debate either revolves around, okay, as a believer, how good do I have to be to really show that I'm saved? Or how much bad can I do and get away with it and still be saved? We shouldn't be asking either one of those questions. If you as a believer or a person who believes they are a believer are asking yourself, how much sin can I get away with? You're asking the wrong question. I would contend, as I've said, that that's a red flag that is a warning that you may not be what you think you are. You may not really be in Christ. And then there's the flip side of, have I done enough? Well, here's the, what I want to tell you. This is what I tell you all the time. Be faithful where God has placed you. What does God want you to do in the place that you are? I will never preach to the millions of people that Billy Graham did. And you know what? That's okay. I am called to be faithful where God has planted me. And that's all I've been called to do. So, Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, wants to encourage them. He's going to talk about joy. And the beginning of that joy is the fact that God who started it is going to complete it. He is going to call them to continue to mature in the faith. He knows they've been saved. He knows they accepted Jesus Christ. They are the saints at the church at Philippi. But he wants them to grow. He wants them to mature in their faith and base that on the knowledge that God, who saved them, is continuing to work in them to bring them to completion. God will complete the task. And that's the promise 
that has been given to the church at Philippi, and I believe it's a promise that we can count on today. So, verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. We're going to have more discussion um, in a lesson or two from now about his imprisonment. Um, there is some little bit of discussion in the commentaries about where he is imprisoned when this is written. Uh, remember when we talked about the book of Ephesians, he was in Rome writing to the church at Ephesus and probably writing to a group of churches in that area. There is some speculation that uh, Paul is writing this from Caesarea. Remember uh, in the book of Acts, we have this discussion of the Jews in Jerusalem want to kill him and the Romans protect him and they take him to the Roman officials and they would take him to Caesarea. It is on the coast. It was the center, if you will, of the Roman influence in uh, Judea. And it, he was in prison there. So that's not a debate of whether he was in prison. But probably, like uh, Ephesians, Paul is in prison in Rome when he is writing this. It doesn't really change the, uh, the meaning of the book one way or the other. He is in prison as he is writing this book. Um, the reason that he was probably in Rome is there's going to be a discussion about the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard are the uh, guards of the Caesar. So they're more likely to be in Rome. It is possible that some of them were scattered around the empire. So it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They are partaking with him in the grace of the gospel, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's an interesting phrase, and we'll have a discussion about that in the weeks to come. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul is saying that he yearns to be with them because of his relationship to the church at Philippi. And then he has a prayer and he asks for a series of things in that prayer for them. And the first thing that he asks for is that their love may abound. The second is that they would increase in knowledge. The third is that they would increase in discernment. And the fourth is that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So start at the beginning that their love may abound. What is love? Well, we've talked about that. Love is looking out for the good of the beloved, looking out for others. You will know that they are Christians by their love. Now, we're going to talk about knowledge. We're going to talk about discernment. All of that is important. But as 1 Corinthians tells us, if you have knowledge, if you have all of these gifts and you have not love, you are wasting your time. If your life does not 
your Christian life does not begin and end with an ever-increasing amount of love, looking out for the needs and, uh, of others, then there's a problem. His prayer is that they would continue to grow in their love, their love for each other, their love for him, their love for Christ, their love for a world in need of the gospel. Love is the mark of Christ in your life. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. We talked about joy. The list begins with love. And if you remember, when we taught through the fruits of the Spirit, I made the discussion that, you know, people want to put them in very detailed order. This produces that. And I'm not sure the order is that important. But I do believe love is at the start of the list for a reason. It begins with love. His prayer for them is that their love may abound. What does abound mean? It just means that it grows. It grows and grows. Now, here's the question. Is my love for others abounding? Or am I just becoming a grumpy old man? Do I sit and wait for people to meet my needs? Do I wait for this or that and complain when I don't get my way? Or is my love abounding? And you know what? I'm not sure I like the answer to that question. I know that I need to be aware of the love that God showed me by sending his son. For God so loved that he sent and when I look at that and the petty things that I complain about, I begin to wonder, is my love abounding? And one of the things that is going to help our love to abound is as we grow in our knowledge of what Christ has done for us, then we begin to understand that those things that others are bothering us with just aren't that important. But I'll tell you, I need to work on that one. That their love may abound, that they may increase in knowledge. What is the knowledge that he wants them to have? The knowledge of what God has done for us. Well, I, I know what that means. You know, I read somewhere, Jesus died for my sins. I accepted Jesus Christ. I'm a believer. What more do I need to know? Well, we need to continue to grow in our knowledge. We need to continue to grow in our knowledge of what God has done. And we do this by studying his word. I've mentioned to you before that uh, I talked to a guy one time who had grown up in the church and then finally just left. And he said, you know, I've heard all those stories. I know everything in the Bible. And I'm going, are you nuts? Every time I read the Bible, I learn something new. And it scares me. It's like, why didn't I see that before? Now, I'll be honest with you. You know, I started my read through the Bible this year and I get to Leviticus and Numbers and you go, ah, why is this here? I've always said that Leviticus and Numbers is where Bible reading plans go to die. Yet, I also know that in Numbers and Leviticus and all the rest of the scripture are truths about God that help us to understand the world in which we live. 
we need to learn more about God. And I would contend as that knowledge increases, our love abounds more. Now, we know that knowledge by itself just puffs us up. I become prideful for what I know. But if we're learning about Christ, our knowledge should not puff us up because the more we learn, the more we know we don't know. I've told you this before. I was a math major in college. And what I discovered is the more math that I learned, the more math I knew I didn't know. So maybe back there in high school, I was a little prideful because I was pretty good at math. By the time I got to college, I knew that there was this huge abundance of math that I knew nothing about. That's the way it is when we learn about Christ. We may get cocky because I know this much about Christ, but as I learn more about Christ, all of a sudden I know how little I know about Christ. And in fact, when we get to chapter 2, we're going to have this magnificent example of Christ's humility, and we are instructed to put on that humility. More about that in the weeks to come. That their love may abound, that, that they may increase in knowledge, and that they may increase in discernment. What is discernment? Well, we have a pretty good uh, definition slash example of it in the book of Hebrews. If you remember Hebrews chapter 5, because Paul, we don't know who wrote the book of uh, Hebrews. So it may or may not have been Paul. Probably not. That's one of those huge debates. But the author of the book of Hebrews tells us, I've got all this stuff that I want to tell you, but I can't tell you because you're not ready for it. You're like babies still drinking milk. We had our nine-month-old grandson over today, and I fed him lunch, and his mother had packed these little tiny quesadillas, and I'm going, I mean, little tiny pieces. And I asked Teresa, I said, what do I do with this? He has no teeth. He would put them in his mouth quite happily and suck them on them for a while and then spit them out and I'd put another one in. It didn't seem to be the most nourishing thing. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. I want to tell you this stuff, but you're still just drinking milk. But solid food, this is verse 14 of chapter 5, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Those who have discernment have trained themselves. What does it say? By constant practice to discern what is good from what is evil. Discernment means being able to say that's right that's wrong. That is in keeping with God's word. That is not in keeping with God's word. How do we learn that? Constant practice. Now, here's the thing you need to remember. You and I don't get to set the standard of what right and wrong is. What we're doing is we're learning God's standard of what right and wrong is. So as we go through our lives, we go, that That's not right. That's not in keeping with the word of God. And discernment means that you have learned to distinguish the good from the bad. 
the righteous from the evil, that which you ought to do and that which you ought to avoid. Or to put it back into the terms we used in the book of Ephesians, the things that we're supposed to put off and the things that we're supposed to put on. Discernment is what allows us to make those decisions. So we increase in love, we increase in knowledge, and through constant practice, we learn discernment. If we are a believer and we have no discernment, we're going to keep wandering down every trail. We're going to fall off every cliff. We're not going to know the path that we're supposed to walk on. So his prayer for the church at Philippi is that their love would abound, that they would grow more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And the last one is that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So what is the prayer? That they would have the fruit of righteousness. What is the fruit of righteousness? Well, um, righteousness is the fruit. Remember back to the fruit of the spirit. Uh, I don't think righteousness is on the list. Why? Because they're all righteousness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Righteousness is working out what God has put in you through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So I work that out by living a righteous life. Throughout the scripture, we are told that your fruit will demonstrate what the condition of your heart is. So uh, we're told you know, that in, in the book of Matthew, that a good vine produces good fruit and a bad vine produces bad fruit. And the fruit that we are supposed to see in the life of believers is the fruit of righteousness. We, God, the world needs to see the righteousness of Christ working its way out in our everyday life. You see, we love, I do, I mean, I don't know about you, but we love talking about the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us, being given to us so we can stand in the presence of a holy God. But sometimes we're less interested in that righteousness working its way out in our everyday life. Remember in Ephesians, we talked about the armor of God and we talked about righteousness and we talked about that being the righteousness that we're actually displaying in the world around us. Once again, if you are a believer, you claim to have accepted Jesus Christ and you're not demonstrating any fruit or any righteousness, it's a red flag that something may not be what you think it is. So Paul's prayer, Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi, and I would contend the prayer for all of us, is that we would, in fact, abound in love, that we would grow in knowledge, that we would grow in discernment and that the fruit of righteousness would be righteousness would be evident in our lives. So, where does that righteousness come from? That comes through Jesus Christ. How many times do we need to repeat this yet we still get it wrong at times? 
grace at the beginning, grace in the middle, grace in the end. Jesus Christ in the middle, I mean at the beginning, Jesus Christ in the middle, Jesus Christ at the end. We need to understand that the fruit comes from Jesus Christ. We need to understand that as we do that which God has instructed us to do, as we do those things, we're doing them through the power of Jesus Christ. So there's no place in any of this for, well, I'm a lot more sanctified than you are. In fact, that's the problem. That is the problem that the Pharisees had fallen into. All of a sudden, they were more righteous than those around them, and they knew they were more righteous, and they acted like they were more righteous, and they ignored the commands of God to walk humbly before God. As I said, we'll have a long discussion in chapter 2 about humility. So, what is it we need to do because of this? Well, we need to remember, we need to remember those that God has brought into our path. We need to be grateful for what they have done for us. We need to abound in love. We need to grow in knowledge. We need to grow in discernment. And we need to demonstrate the fruit of righteousness, knowing that it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And why do we do that? For our glory? No. To the glory and praise of God. Everything that we do, we do to the glory and praise of God. Remember, back to the discussion uh, in the book of Ephesians. Don't do whatever it is you're doing to be praised by men. Rather do it to the praise and glory of God. So, that's the end of the introduction. We will continue our study of the book of Philippians next week. And I would like you to remember this week to grow, to grow, and spend some time thinking about joy. Because I don't know about you, but when things get tough, joy is not necessarily at the top of my list. So as I work through the book of Philippians, I know that I am going to work at looking at what joy means and how Paul, in the midst of his imprisonment, can talk about living a joyful life. Have a good week, and I'll see you next week.